Hey everyone, Sam here. Welcome to the first episode of The Cast with myself and Pastor Mike. The two of us have been meeting for some time now to discuss things that are important and meaningful to us, and we wanted to let you in on our conversations because we suspect that these things might be important and meaningful to you as well. We do invite you to send your thoughts and or questions by visiting risencitychurch.com cast and filling out the form on that page. Feel free to keep it anonymous if you wish. We do welcome any and all feedback, and we hope that you'll keep engaging in these conversations with us. All right, so Mike, why don't you start off and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Sam. Um, as Sam said, I'm Mike, and I am the teaching and vision pastor at Risen City Church. Uh, my wife, Emily, and I helped plant it, I guess it was just over a year ago. We have two kids. I live in West, and um, a couple of interesting things, I guess. You know, um, I really like basketball. I, make, I talk about that a lot at church. I like basketball. I like cooking. Um, right now, I'm, right, I'm into omelets for some reason. I make them like every day. Um, interesting fact. Just putting it out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you want to know anything else, I'm, I'm not that complex of a human being. We're going to find out a lot about you over the course over of the course podcast. of the podcast, I'm sure. Um, yeah, that's about it. Um, oh, I should say at the start, um, I was born and raised in Ontario. I've never lived in the States. Um, and so although you might be tempted to believe at some later point that I do, um, have a background, you know, from the southern states of of America. I do not. I do enjoy chicken and waffles, but um, my accent is. It just is. I I don't know why it's there, but I have I've had people literally ask me about my immigration story. So, um, just put it so that just so you don't have to question that later. I just want to put that out there. I, I was gonna ask you that if you didn't. If touch I didn't. On it, okay. Well, I did. So it's all good. Well, how about you, Sam? Sure. Um, I'm Sam. I am 24 years old. I am a user experience designer at an engineering company here in Kitchener. Um, if you don't know what that is, basically, I just design how software looks and feels and um, makes you feel. So that's what I do. Um, I am involved at Risen City Church. I wear a lot of hats. I lead a connect group. I do a fair bit of stuff with our kind of look and feel of our church. Um, so social media, uh, slides on Sunday morning, whatnot. Um, and I enjoy that a lot. I am not married. I have no kids. And um, I, I like to hope I'm becoming a less complex human being as time goes on. So maybe one day I'll be as uncomplex as Mike. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing. I'm just saying. <laughs> Being complex is okay. It's, uh, it's good. It's I good. don't know. I think I think as time goes on, you kind of want to grow out of some of your complexity or answer some of your complexity a bit, and hopefully we'll do that over the course of this podcast. Mike and I have what I think is a pretty thought-provoking discussion coming up, but before we get to that, I do want to remind everyone in our church community that Heart and Soul is coming up this Thursday, February 7th at 7 p.m. at Creekside Kitchener. That's Thursday, February 7th, 7 p.m. at Creekside Kitchener. So if you're a part of our church, maybe you've been serving for a while, maybe you've just started serving, maybe you want to start serving, this night is for you. 
You are the heartbeat of our church, so we hope that you'll come out and share in what will be an amazing night of worship, encouragement, community, food, and fun. And if you have children, we've got special programming for them as well, so it'll be a great night for the whole family. I'm super excited to see all of you there. I read, I finished two books last year, um, which was more than I had read the year before. <laughs> uh, I, I was good at starting a lot of books and not great at finishing them. But uh, this year, I'm, I'm going to try and ramp that up a lot. I, if I could read like 10 books this year, I think that'd be pretty great. I, I hope I do. Um, right now, I'm halfway through Henry Nouwen's book, The Wounded Healer. Um, it was recommended to me. A long time ago by uh, someone else at our church, uh, Ivan, shout out to Ivan, and I've been really enjoying it. I'm about halfway through it right now. It's not very long. I was actually hoping to be done it before we recorded this episode, but uh, some things got in the way, as life always does. Life happens. Life happens. Um, but I've been really enjoying it. It has really uh, kind of put into words a lot of the things that I've been thinking about and feeling, but uh, maybe not been able to kind of organize in my head. Um, and it's essentially about how you do ministry effectively in the modern world. And he makes quite a few points kind of early on in the book, the first chapter. He talks about how we need to, in order to be effective uh, ministers in our society, we have to kind of understand the condition of our society. We have to uh, recognize where the wounds of our society are in ourselves, the way he puts it here. For all ministers are called to recognize the sufferings of their time in their own hearts and to make that recognition the starting point of their service. So the fascinating thing about this book to me, I think, is that it was written in 1972. Um, it has been revised. I am reading a revised edition of the book, but a lot of the things that he's talking about just seem like they're straight out of the 21st century. Um, they seem like struggles that millennials and and gen zeds are having currently kind of two of the things that really hit me are uh, some of the conditions that we have right now are what he calls historical dislocation so we kind of like don't really have a great sense of our place in history a lot of our cultural traditions symbols um, ideologies and and religious ideas sort of feel useless um, we're not even sure if it's worth bringing children into the world because we can't even guarantee that there's a future for them so there's a disconnection between the past and then there's a disconnection from uh, the future that we could mm -hmm. potentially envision for ourselves. Uh, so that that's really interesting. That's something I have definitely felt before. And uh, I think kind of that insight is, is really key to understanding how people are nowadays. Um, another thing he points out is this idea of fragmented ideology and a, a, sh a fast shifting value system. Um, value, people's values are so fluid now. They're, they're constantly changing. Um, you know, within the span of months, you can have someone just, just reinvent how they think about things and, and what's important to them, what's, what they hold dear and which is wild and kind of, you know, leads to this dislocation that we all feel, I think. Well, I think it sort of hits more like both of those connect around kind of this idea of rootedness, right? Like, cause if you can continue change um worldview and ideology and your perspective it's partly hopefully it's because you're growing and you're learning and you're mm -hmm. you're thinking more about stuff but if it's just a constant superficial change based on trend based on 
obviously right now in the world of social media based on pressure and, and whatnot, then that is a, I would say, a symptom of just being kind of untethered from reality, but but also history. Like he said, if, if there's this historical a disconnection or dislocation, then um, we don't know where we've come. We don't know how to not repeat what's been done. We don't know how to, how to think well about, like, it's the thing, like, Ecclesiastes, right? There, there's nothing new under the sun. And although in a theological sense, I kind of, kind of disagree with him for other reasons, which we can get into later if we want, but on a very human sense, like our, our issues are our issues. Like when you were talking about this book earlier, right. And he's writing you know, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. even more than that. Um, and how accurate it is because, because one of the things that I love about guys like, like Henry Nowlin, and we've talked about Dallas Willard and, and guys like that who can almost see into the human um, can write, they, they write from the human condition, really, that, that, that does transcend time. Like, there's always the, this, this, I would say, um, commonality amongst culture and time. We are all human. We're all trying to figure it out. We all have suffering. And we would argue, obviously, now today, a lot less suffering, maybe, um, in most people's lives than general in history. But suffering itself still hits us at different levels. That if we don't really look back, like I, we, we just preached on this, actually, a couple of weeks ago um, for New Year's, that... We have this great cloud of witnesses behind us in our faith that that have gone through before, have overcome, have seen victory, defeat. Hebrews 11 right talks about those who have overcome and closed the mouth of lions. Those have been sawn in two, like both outcomes, both potential futures, both suffering. But yet there's this cloud of witnesses. There's people behind us that that sort of can champion us on. If we are dislocated from that history, not just like actual like family history, but just even faith history, right? You actually lose a lot of power for the future, right? You lose a lot of ability to stay optimistic knowing that someone's done this before. Like, like the way I like thinking about it is that like, yes, you are unique, but your problems really aren't, right? Someone has struggled in this way. Someone has gone through it before. Um, and yeah, you might be the unique expression of that. Your story is your story, fine. But like, I can guarantee there's someone who has had that doubt, even in your family. If you think about it, like, I'm sure your dad and your mom, right, when they were 22, had thoughts, had feelings, maybe a little different because of the social media world and whatnot, but questions and so it's like if we think we are this unique generation this unique time it's both i would argue what c.s lewis called chronological chronological snobbery it's kind of like a self um praise a little bit that look at us we are the most unique culture which is not true yeah Um, i think like to that point it's when when people tell me that uh you know i need to i need to change something about you know the way i think because that is just the culture we live in now and like I, that just doesn't really ring true for me because it's not like like in throughout history i think every culture has gone through you know a lot of a lot of the kinds of value shifts that our culture is even going mm-hmm. through right now in a different way i mean the expression wasn't always the same but the idea that i just have to keep up with culture all the time is absurd to me it's even even like fashion for example people are saying hey bell bottom pants are going to come back I'm like, they, they are, people are going to look back in 30 years if bell-bottom pants come back and say how stupid that was. Just the way that we have done for the last, I don't know, 10 years, look back on the early 2000s mm-hmm. or whatever, and, and the people before us look back on the 1970s and thought how stupid that was. Like, these, these things just are cyclical. They just come in cycles. Yeah, but I, that's where I think we have to, the, like, I, get, I would argue, too, the response of, the Christian is a, 
um, redeemed optimism into the future, right? That things don't have to cycle. Obviously, on fashion and whatnot, yeah. fine. But like, and the like, there has to be this kind of thing in the Christian heart that says um, that redemption, true redemption, true um, glory of God coming, heaven meeting earth can happen. Now, mm-hmm. I would argue from that sense that there's always a new generation being raised up who has to capture that heart and keep that optimism alive and. And, and again, progress of technology is different than progress of humanity and, yeah. and, and, and those things. But, you know, I, I definitely agree that we would argue, as, obviously, as Christians, that truth is, um, is, is an objective reality above culture, right? So that at any time, in any place, I should be able to connect to this thing. And, and I think the evidence of that lacking of understanding in, in the modern world is the fact that things change so quickly. Mm-hmm. And again, not in a technology. I, I love technology. I got Apple watch. I got, we all got, you know, laptops and things. I'm not saying that I'm saying, um, the idea that, you know, just because we have moved like, like the, I think the worst argument ever that I had no, even with talking about having it, we have to be, you know, kind of sensitive to and see where people come from. It's like, well, it's 2019. So fill in the blank. So we better believe this. We better like, that's the, like, that's just like one of the worst, lowest forms of like argumentation. Hey, well, it's 2019, so therefore blank, 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 right? Again, and, and so I would argue that the sensitive Christian heart of, well, let's understand our culture has to come, you know, first and foremost. But then it's like there is a kind of genuine untethering that we have to address. That's like truth is what ultimately roots us in the story of humanity, what has been true, what will always be true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I, 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 but I, the, ev- and to me also the evidence of what, what he's saying, I don't know, this is maybe cause I'm a pastor. So I'm in church looking at people watching trends and whatnot is that people like, especially young people have a really hard time committing because it's like, they don't want to be tied down in an ever changing world, right? Like yeah. my options always have to be open. So I can't, commit to stay in one city and one job in one place. And, you know, you could argue that out to one person, right. For too long, because what if, right. Yeah. And, you know, I think there, it's, it, to me, it's just, it's hard to build something of value if there isn't a kind of rootedness, yeah. right. Like life changes obviously happens, but yeah, I, yeah, you can look at the rootedness almost like putting yourself voluntarily putting yourself in, in some kind of box. There's so much freedom once you, put limits on yourself mm-hmm. somewhat it's kind of why i like being vegetarian <laughs> there's only three things on the menu i can i can choose from so i don't have to think about it too Chickpeas, hard tofu or yep. cashews that's it keeps me grounded saves me a lot of time i don't have to uh you know worry about things that don't matter that much i mean not that life in general is like that <laughs> most things in life matter but uh, I, do. I, I don't know i think i think giving yourself limits and rules is important and and uh having yourself grounded in some kind of truth. And I think like where this gets interesting is, you know, what is truth? And I think, uh, great topic for the first podcast. It is. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Um, but like in the church, for example, uh, like the, with the modernist movement that's happened where a lot of, you know, what we know, what we take as truth or orthodoxy, like that's, a that's something that has actually been up for debate and, you know, what, what even is, the word of God and what even is authority and all that. And I think like for a lot of people on a faith journey, that can get really scary a lot. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people now, nowadays the trend is to kind of deconstruct your faith a little bit, I think. Well, I, like again, I, I think 
that when it comes to like doubting and deconstructing and all those things, I think they're actually good things. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's what people don't often understand that like as a Christian, like there's no, there's nothing that, that prevents me from critically engaging with my faith. I think the Christians that struggle with that or fear that in some way actually are, are exposing not the weakness of Christianity, but the weakness of their own belief in Christian or understanding mm-hmm. of it. Like yeah. we would argue, and I say this a lot during my sermons, that like we don't say as Christians that we have all the answers. We just believe that in the marketplace of ideas, we have the best idea, yeah. that the most cohesive and coherent one explains, you know, purpose and tell us and origin and sin and brokenness and redemption and life and our argumentation, the best way that seems to line up best, right? Like I'm, and, and again, so I think, for us, the invitation of doubt in that way, right, to, to try to put uh, our faith to the test and question, like, it, 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 it's, it's actually, I think, a detriment to our faith to not do that. Well, I mean, the whole idea of <clears throat> faith can only exist if doubt can be a thing, too. Like, doubt has, doubt is kind of a necessary thing for faith to even exist. There has to be the possibility of you not accepting the word of God or the, or the story of Jesus or the gospel there, that possibility has to exist. And I, I guess there has to be almost be reason for you to doubt in order for you to truly have faith. Well, again, I think in the, in, in the human experience maybe, but if you go back right to the beginning, right, God, we believe he makes creation and sure we can argue on the exact mechanics of that, whatever, but we have Adam and Eve, the image bearers of God and their doubt was not, ever placed in his existence he was placed in his character so i think right. there's different layers of that like we live in a doubt more of existence yeah. or of, of of his essence of, of of like you know that kind of atheistic doubt versus a um ignorance of his character or a, or a doubt who this god is so i think there's always the element of some kind of doubt um adam and eve obviously doubted the goodness of god the nature of god the promise of god the character of god um so that's why you know they took advantage and obviously were deceived so I would say yes and no. Like I think when you talk about doubt in the, doubt in the modern world, it's much more of a of an of a presuppositional kind of intellectual based doubt. Yeah. Uh, where doubt, I think, of the ancient world, especially when we go just tracking the story of the Bible, right? It wasn't a doubt in supernatural. And again, it's not because they were primitive people, right? Like we would not play that game. That somehow, you know, because we have learned some things and have gained the history, the like the benefit of history and the like, like people were still smart. There were still geniuses. There were still intellectual people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I'm not trying to compare that at all. Like, I, I don't like that reading of history. But there was no doubt on the existence of God. It was usually on the nature of what this God is like. Yeah. Right. Like, and we've talked about this before. And I don't know if we want to go here even in this, but like, the, the 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 fragmentation of God really is an example of that. Right. Where God started as monotheistic, and as sin sort of entered the world, and we broke our relationship with God further away from Him. Right, we end up worshiping certain aspects of him alone. Right, the different ancient uh, names for God were different attributes: the King, the Warrior, the Father. Right, the the the, 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 the God of Lightning that we see even in the Psalms, throwing lightning down. Like all the different aspects of God that were broken off, and then in Jesus we come back to like the God incarnate, the the, the re um, capitulation of all those things into one um, as the true what we would argue, right. you know, expression of God. Right, that that even that is is again a layer of of how that works out. But, you know, today I would say that if, if our doubt does rest much more in the, in the in intellectual level, which mm. I think in the West is true, um, what that shows for us is that I think 
we have to be better at wrestling with faith intellectually. Like, I, like I just don't think Christians often think deeply enough. Like, I think, yeah, I would, I would argue that. Like, like even Emily and I were talking about this as random as it is. How, how people today don't just sit and think. Right? We always fill the space, right? Like sitting back and literally sitting there just considering things and again obviously you are you are a horrible own authority like our minds are not limitless and our reason is broken we need other people but just sitting there and thinking and contemplating and wrestling the way that ancients did it like i keep saying like too much i'm sorry i I gotta what's going on with me today you're a millennial i'm a millennial i just talk horribly but point being is because we have so much to fill with social media, phones, you know, even the argument that this lady was making on this podcast was that um, because of books and writing, we've stopped orating and talking and just mm. sort of dialoguing on things. Yeah. And, and that apparently there was these quotes of, of like Plato who would argue that like the written word will kind of destroy our thinking a little bit because we don't have to process it and remember anymore. And again, I don't know if it's, I didn't look up and fact check her, so she could be completely wrong. But the idea to me was actually pretty, pretty brilliant that like, when we don't sit and think and dialogue and talk and engage and just sort of consume, 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 or we don't actually work these things out. Um, well, we, we like the best way to learn is to teach other people what you've learned. I mean, that's a, that's a thing I've heard. And I would say that's true in my experience because I don't think I can truly say I understand something until I can just tell it to you. And it just comes naturally to me. Um, you know, my mentor at work will often things he's tried to make me do before is to get up in front of people and explain a concept to them. And that's kind of when he knows that I understand it correctly, or if I can explain it even just back to him. Um, so I think, I think what you're saying is, is absolutely hundred percent correct. I think we all use our different words to maybe explain the same thing, but as long as the same, the point is getting across and, and it can be communicated um, correctly between two people. Like I would agree, like both people are, are engaging with it and probably committing it to memory a lot better. One book I'm actually reading right now is called the innovators. It's all about the digital revolution and like throughout history who helped create the computer and ultimately the internet. And, um, and just one thing I was actually reading today talking about like being able to communicate, um, was a simple line. Um, it says that innovation requires articulation that you can't even really advance until you can take these things, that you've thought of the, the, these ideas, the, the, these new concepts. In this case, it was about programming uh, the early computers and be able to articulate them in, in a way, in a language, that the other person can actually understand it. And, and, and the lady that he's talking about in this specific instance is a lady called Grace Hopper who helped program one of the first computers. And, um, and she'd have to go through the engineers and be able to explain to them the idea and then go to the lay people and just be able to articulate what they're trying to do. And, and this idea of being able to truly communicate at multiple levels, right? What you actually believe about something in this case, you know, it's talking about computer programming, but in, in, in the ray of faith, like if, if people aren't thinking deeply enough to be able to communicate simply enough, right? Could we argue that maybe we just have a superficial faith? We know the words, right? We know, the theological language, the church has always been accused of jargon, right? That we just have our Christianese and we talk and assume that people know, even Christians are supposed to know these words. But I think part of the power of, of learning in this way would be the simplicity of our language. That it's like the goal 
is not to sound smart. No. The goal is to be simple, clear, and, and as one as this author actually wrote, crisp in our language. That's it's it's to the point. It's 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 easy accessible, as a way of like demonstrating knowledge. And I think Christians, especially, I would argue the the ones who maybe haven't thought enough about it, tend to overcomplicate our language in like those. Especially on the on the, on the, those philosophical questions of existence, of suffering, of evil, of those things, we try to have these convoluted answers. When to truly understand might be to simply say the simplest things for the audience that is in front of us, um, as an expression of that. And so again, I think I think it comes back to that. Like even Christians are kind of detached, are kind of dislocated. Like even I was reading today because I'm doing this series on um, the Ten Commandments. Um, and I was going back into some work on Aquinas on the Ten Commandments and just his work on murder as an example, as, as sort of an aberration from the, the best good, the greatest good. And, and again, his language obviously is pretty complex and um, his ideas are, are, are grand, but uh, being able to take that and try to articulate it in a way that everyday Christians can go and think through, right, I think is, is what we actually need to get to, that we have an ability to think deeply and then think clearly and then articulate and communicate in ways that matter. Well, Mike, you actually believe all that stuff? Didn't you go to reform school? <laughs> Is that how they teach you to think? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. Um, I am. I did go to reform school. Uh, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, right, like knowing how to think complexly, that's – I don't even know if that's correct. Knowing, knowing how to think in complex ways um, – it doesn't say much about your value in pastoring, mm-hmm. right? Because you, it's, it's the articulation of those things. Yeah. Right? I think, like, this is interesting to me because it's only been the past year that I've really taken a deep dive into theology and just, like, even trying to scratch the surface of it all, figure out what all the theological camps are. And it's like, it's like the more I read, I have to ask myself, like, am I really becoming a better Christian? Like, through all this, like, n- knowledge, am I really becoming more like Jesus in all of it? And, like, that's that's the biggest tension to me because it's like I, I'm definitely getting so much more smart about theology. And I'm, uh, I could probably explain a lot of this stuff much better than I could a year ago. But I don't know if, if my heart is, like, becoming more in the image of God through all of this. And I think that in itself would validate what you're saying. That... Well, I think to me, it's always the question of what is the purpose of theology, right? Like uh, this thing that I'm so hyper emotional and like whatever, but like if <laughs> theology for me, the way that I had, I have to think about it is, 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 is a relational kind of like a relational way of understanding God. Like I'm going to theology to kind of, again, just go with me on the metaphor. Don't take it too far, right? Sort of going on like a date with God a little bit where the point of it is to get to know him, to understand him more, to, to see some things about him that I didn't understand before. Um, it's not to simply get smart. Like I, I want to be able to at some level be able to wrestle with or articulate with other people who, you know, who maybe, you know, uh, scholars and philosophers. And not that I would ever be that that level yet, but um, I want to get to this place where I can argue and, and articulate and debate. You said I like debating and talking and whatnot, but the goal really is for me, it has to be to learn these things so that I can express God better, so I can understand him deeper and be pulled into that place, right? And so, um, you know, God, you know, to me has to be a, a point of of curiosity, right? A place of, 
like again, go with me on the metaphor. Just stay, you know, in in the realm of real realistic expectation, right? Just like a marriage. Yeah. Right. Like if I don't stay curious about the heart of my wife, my marriage will get stale. Yeah. You know, if I don't stay curious about the way she's, because the woman I marry is not the woman that you know, five years, six years later is there. She's different. She's changed. And with God, it's not that he's changed. There's so much to know and so much to think about that if, if I'm just studying theology, studying philosophy, studying the Bible for the sake of knowing stuff and quoting stuff, then 100% all you've done is create a modern-day Pharisee who who has the words but no spirit, who who can quote the tradition but his heart's far from God. Um, and so if, if theology doesn't bring you to that place, then you have to figure out what's the disconnect ultimately, right? Because, you know, the deeper we, we understand God, truly, like, like and I don't mean intellectually, but just whole person understand, the more we will love. Like, that is the outcome of that. Mm-hmm. The more we will um, express His nature in, in us. That, like, to me, I'm someone who takes kind of in the, in, in that realm of kind of a Dallas Willard approach to spirituality in the sense that, like, the goal of God is to bring heaven here, to make me like him here, to your will be done and your kingdom come right now. And one of the ways that we do that is through learning about him and then acting in that way. And Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus called himself, right, the way, the truth. Like, truth is him, right? That That's what we believe. And so, like, there, ha- like, <laughs> there has to be an element of, of intellectual rigor and, and growth that comes to knowing the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but void of the way, void of the life, void of the heart, void of the, you know, um, abiding in him, void of the devotions, void of those other things. It's just simply knowledge. And, and again, to quote the Bible, right? James says, well, the demons know he's a savior and that doesn't do anything, right? It's yeah. like, it's not, it's not really about the knowledge if that's where it ends, right? And yeah. so I, I would, I would love to see more Christians engage with philosophy, engage with theology, engage with these questions, and get to the point of a see. The thing is, I would, I would, I would argue that, like a guy like Henry Nouwen, is a, a very unique kind of practical theologian in this yeah. way, where it's it's theology. Maybe we disagree on some things because you know we come from different traditions and whatnot, but. But the way that it's a pastoral theology, the way that he can see into the human soul and apply the things of God. And, and like, I think that is the thing we need to understand better, that that's the goal ultimately. Yeah, it seems like to me, like theology maybe gives me like a solid ground to stand on because I'm not going to lose my faith the minute something goes wrong because I, you know, I think I believe God can redeem it all. And I, I have a better understanding of God than just he's going to make me feel good and, and whatnot. And uh, it, it'll certainly. Wait cover- a second. Well, God just doesn't want you to feel good. <laughs> I know it was news to me too until I until I started reading the Bible. Okay, uh, Sam. <laughs> but what I would say there is just that it only it only does part of the job for you, and the rest of it, like you said, like all those other things that that actually make you more like Christ. That is the second part of it. I mean, you have to know what God is like. You have to understand Him to to understand like what the the end goal is. But just understanding it won't make you that way, I guess, is how I'd put it. Well, I, again, I would say that, you know, most people who've studied the Bible in a scholarly fashion, Christian or not, can articulate some of the basic values we understand about God, right? And the goal is not to be able to quote, you know, all the incommunicable and communicable attributes of God, right? Like, that's the goal is what are those things 
ultimately produced in my life for the good of the kingdom and the glory of God in the world. Like if we were made to glory in God and join forever, all those basic answers, which I agree with, um, right? The invitation to glory in God is to correctly know him. Like that's 10 commandments, right? No other gods, no idols. It's like know who I actually am and yeah. live in light of that, yeah. um, which takes work, right? And it's not just, and again, I think today in the realm of Christianity, specifically evangelical Christianity, modern Christianity, Right, where even the nature of who Jesus was and is, his connection to the Old Testament, the idea of the incarnation, right, I think is slowly, you know, becoming wrongfully more mysterious, right? Like, I, I think who he is and what he is like is, we would argue, the way of orthodoxy, right, has been set out. But it's, it's really the understanding of what that means, like that this, he is the God man, that he is fully God or truly God and truly human. Right, inflate like all those different elements of Jesus, like they just make him so much more beautiful that I think if the end goal of theology, especially Christology and you know pneumatology and um, and some of like the the New Testament specific kind of things for like the life of the believer, um, like if the goal is to see Christ as beautiful, then it makes theology so much better. It's not just to correct wrong thinking; it's the glory. It's to find joy. Like it's the thing of recognizing that he is the thing that we love above all else. And he's worthy of it because if I understand him and I know him and I don't know, like to me that always had to, they're, they're, you could call it romantic. Sure. Right. There always had to be that kind of romantic and not in the like, ro- well, what's a better way of saying Not kind of like, you know, classic romanticism where it's more poetic and about beauty and all that stuff. Right. Versus, you know, re- human relationships, but uh, that kind of just beauty focus, that kind of thing that comes into it where, God is ultimately beautiful in, right. in the truest sense of that word. Um, and theology should lead us there. Um, and when it doesn't, um, I think that that's, it's a void of something. Um, do, you, do you think the theological systems, like certain theological systems, can like inherently produce bad fruit, even if they're like orthodox? Do you think that they have the tendency to lead people to behave a certain way that is not like Christ because I've heard people say that there are certain Calvinists that because of their belief in predestination they think oh well there's the elect already and I don't got to do anything that you know there's almost like a laziness inherent to that do you think that that's a real thing that is widespread I think that exists everywhere um in all in all theological camps right like I think there is um misappropriation of doctrine i think there is overemphasis underemphasis like i could probably make fun of the calvinists as much as i make fun of pentecostals right and i was raised pentecostal went to a calvinist school so i got both sides of it and it can rip them all apart um including myself right but i do think that that what you actually articulated there is more about the nature of our need for unity in the church actually versus the danger of theological like systems because um it's when we get fearful of a difference of secondary opinion, right? Like if we would argue that there are, there are essential things, right? That um, God made the world, that he is triune, that Christ is incarnate, the spirit was given, sin is real, judgment is real, redemption is real, heaven's coming, new, he- new heavens and new earth, right? Like there's, there are some essential things. And beyond that, right, there are non-essential, secondary, but important issues, you know, um, Obviously, today in the church, women's roles, spiritual giftings, um, yeah, you know, the order of salvation, right, the role of the Holy Spirit in that, 
Tulip and, you know, all the different agreements or disagreements. Like there are those secondary things. And I would argue that from what I have experienced, there's not one system that produces worse things than other ones in an, in an orthodox sense. Because I have met some of the most beautiful, Jesus-loving, awe-inspiring Christians in the Reformed tradition, right, who believe that there are some who are just predestined to hell and some who aren't, right? And more missional and more focused on people who are, you know, hard dominions and, you know, reject all of that. And I've met some of the most sensitive and God-fearing and holy and loving people in the Pentecostal church and then, like, the caricatures that you would expect. Like, so I, I think it's, it, it's, it's realizing that um, our commonality of Christ— is then supplemented and not like it's lacking, but is is helped in our diversity of opinion. That that, that there is that kind of thing that we need of each other because yeah. when you look at them, right? I think what you're saying is, hey, there is this tendency that exists in this theological camp, right? That hey, maybe doesn't doesn't always exist in this one. Mm-hmm. So how can they benefit each other, yeah. right? Or you could also argue the fact that, you know. I've met some really lazy, charismatic people yeah. and some really lazy Calvinist people. I, I know growing up, it was always like, <laughs> it's pretty bad, but like growing up, it was kind of like the Calvinists were the ones who just, you know, do whatever they want. Cause they're in any way. We sort of did make fun of them for that. So I'd argue that might be a character <laughs> of that, of that movement. I love you guys. I appreciate you. You helped train me. Um, but I, but I would say that I have found obviously, you know, I'm a charismatic. I'm, um, I'd be kind of like, half reformed, I guess in some ways I have a sort of a, a nuanced theology in that sense that I'm not really pinned down, but like I found that there's benefits and, and dangers of both. And the, yeah, I, I would, I would not, I would not blame necessarily the system of theology as much as I would blame the human condition, right. Of, of the, of pride, of vanity, of sort of short, short sightedness of my own failure um, and desire to ultimately be spiritually lazy. Like I think, that it just, I would actually I would say it, that 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 it, that it, that just expresses itself differently, right? Because yeah. I think it can express itself in a moral laziness. It can express itself in a intellectual, um, and and a, a, a great heightened intellectual capacity that that covers my maturity, right. right? Like I can know a lot of the stuff, but not be mature in my faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it just made might express itself a lot differently. Yeah, I I agree so much with that take that um, all these theological camps, you know, ultimately have value to one another like in i don't know if that i don't know if that's like the a really ecumenical thing to say maybe it is i don't maybe it is. i don't mind if it is um but uh because i think to apply this to my own life i will i will listen to like the most theologically liberal christians on in the world just i just want to hear their ideas you know because it's because it's foreign to me like it, <laughs> i don't it's not what i hear on sunday morning i want to hear it's not you're right i want to hear other stuff but I find when I need a nice palate cleanser, and I don't have a Calvinist bone in my body, but I put on Tim Keller and have him say, you know, just reaffirm all these kind of truths to me just so that I don't lose my foothold. Because that's, I don't want to become displaced in my faith at all. I think that's the last thing I want. I want to grow and, and glean some good ideas from other people, but ultimately hold to what I believe is are the essentials. Well, 100%, I think that... I'd even argue that's, I think it's more wider spread, right? Like, I, I've talked to a bunch of people about this, people who mainly deal with churches and whatnot, but, like, even the idea of, like, denominations themselves not really being 
as strong or unified as they used to be, right? That there is kind of more of this networky approach to church now, right? Especially with church planning movements and things that are started up, that even like our our boxes are sort of falling apart. I think for good, for bad, right? There's there's there there's always that risk of kind of spiritual anarchy, right? But um, but I think that you're right that it's just like diving in to the depths of philosophical and theological thought um, is good and I think needed and helps sharpen the mind, but it does need to be not like, I know you said palate cleanse, but I think it needs to be just injected again with come with, with what we would, I would call core truth yeah. and, you know, essential truth, things like that, which I would articulate um, is much better presented yeah. often in reform theology than, than typical charismatic or, you know, Pentecostal or, you know, Baptist. Baptists are pretty good because not all of them are reformed. Love you, Baptists. You know, I'm not one to make start any fights here. But, um, so I'd say there's, there, there's things like that, right? Because then, then you get into the emphasis, I think, right? Yeah. So, like, even in our church, um, you know, people have said things like, um, you know, you... Well, like I, the way that we deal sometimes with like social justice issues, people will say that you're you're too kind of like progressive in in your theology. People when we talk about obviously spiritual gifts and things like that, we're too charismatic. When we talk about grace, like you're too Calvinist, and like no one really knows how to pin us down a little bit. Um, and I think that's actually a good thing, an important thing. I kind of like I'm trying to legitimately wrestle with the best parts of theology. Um, in no way ignore the hard parts at all, right? Like I fully engage with the conversation of free will and God's knowledge and we'll talk about it, but I'm also grace first, grace is better, grace only, Jesus only. Like, like I love that stuff and that I, it actually brings me so much comfort to know that I can't out sin grace. Like that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, that who I am in Christ is more than the things that, that I do and that I have the Holy Spirit to empower me for a mission and give me spiritual gifts to be effective in the church and that, you know, I'm called to love the poor and be really big about that and care about my environmental impact. Like, I like I don't think, I think the camps we've done in the past have made it almost too exclusive to believe certain things. Yeah. And and again, that's probably a high, that's such a high view of it. But as that begins to fall apart, like even for me as a preacher, I listen to, you know, Baptist guys, kind of reform guys, you know, your typical kind of like conference speaker guys, you yeah. know. Tim Keller, consume him. Judas Smith, like the, the I've listened to some Furtick, listened to Carl Lentz, Mark Clark, um, Matt Chandler, right? Like I just do kind of the whole gamut. I big into John Piper for a while. Haven't really listened to him in, in, in a bit, but read some of the books, right? Like it just and and I actually don't think there's conflict there. I think obviously there's theology nuance, but the truths that are there that then present tension later on are, are tensions that we or I try to hold and not always resolve right like tension i think sometimes is good for us in that in that that sense yeah and i think uh well so i read in bad religion that was a kind of the first book i read that got me on my reading spree where uh ross do that he's a new york times columnist he talks about kind of the origins of heresies and he talks about people's discomfort with those tensions and with with things that seemingly uh, are contradictory that kind of when you try to explain it from one side or try to explain away those contradictions, you end up with heresy or extra biblical teaching or um, just misleading, just bad teaching in general. Um, so I think 
like I do think that Christians as a whole do need to get a lot better with you know living with tension and living with uh, what seems like contradiction to us. Like I, I guess like my whole thing, as you know, would be I love mystery. I think I think we don't uh, lean on mystery enough, and um, certainly I. Well, I haven't read enough Henry Nouwen to know, but it seems like that's what your your impression of him is, is he he's into the mystery. He loves that. And I guess the Catholic Church in general does. I mean, as much as they try to theologize, over-theologize a lot, they also do love the mystery. Well, there is that, that very um, long history of, of the mystics and the mysticism, mm-hmm. which I know evangelicals don't really like talking about. Um, but if you say spiritual formation, then it... Yeah, I like that. All right, do some disciplines and get to your spot. Right, that's really what it comes down to. Um, but like, I think, yeah, there has to be. Because because mystery brings like I probably would never use the word not never can't say never I don't use the word mystery maybe but um, because of those connotations, but I think it brings a kind of a kind of humility to us, right? Like there are things that are certain, I would argue, in the scriptures. One being that the scripture is our authority. Like we talk about that a lot at church, that like that we come under it, we let it teach us, we let it guide us, that it's the word of God for the good of our soul, right? And we, we do that. And that which is clear is clear, and that which is not clear is not clear. And then we have to sort of wrestle with those interpretations. And I think we don't we don't like that. Right? You, be, you're saying the Bible isn't clear, Mike? Yes. Have you read it? Um, there are some things that that bring tension to us. And a lot of times we want we want to resolve that because it brings a kind of sense of control to God and in right standing in us. Like I've figured this out, I've made mm-hmm. sense of this, but like almost like a false sense of permanence. Like I'm here and I've arrived, and then it that's just it. is what it is, right? Like I, I think that even like some of the passages, like where God, Jesus, Peter talks about him going and preaching to the dead. Like what does that mean? Like I, I don't, I don't really. No one really knows. That's the point. It's where, like there are theological positions and there's people who have debated about it you know even I'll just because you know we like controversy um the role of women in church right like that is something that brilliant people on both sides of the table disagree on based on the reading of scripture and so one side would say it's clear the other side would say well of course it's clear my side's right which then leads me to believe that maybe it's not as clear as we think Right, you could also argue that one person is deceived fine then it isn't clear but like the point being jesus loving right Smart people, I've thought about these things, and, and so that does bring us back to that place truly of like orthodoxy. What is the essential to our faith? What has the Bible said? What has our traditions held up over time? Like I know that evangelicals don't like that, but that's part of our faith, right? And, and what has come and lasted, right? Like 2,000 years of church history is important. We can't just yeah, like think that we nothing. need to rediscover that. The Reformation was not necessarily ground zero of the church. I mean, some people talk like C.S. Lewis was like a, a church founding father. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, there's their kind of their sense of church history is that that limited, I think, to twenty first century, well, Western culture. My boy Clive was pretty brilliant. I wish I could call him my boy. Like, for my real. boy Wait, is that his? Was it was this Clive? That was C.S. Clive Lewis's something name? Lewis. Wow. Today now I, I sound dumb not knowing the second part, but. Sam. I'm going to say it was Sam. Probably not. <laughs> we probably could look it up, but we won't um, because it's not that important. But 
What is C.S. Lewis is awesome. Uh, you know what I'm saying. He is don't, awesome. Don't judge me for what I just said. Um, but yeah, you're right. But I think, and I and I, I, I like I've I've been thinking about this a lot because of the idea of you know the Wesleyan quadrilateral, right? Faith or tradition, uh, scripture, reason, and and um, experience. All these things that form how we understand of God and our theology. And our theology. And it's like like these all matter, right? And yes, as evangelical sort of thinkers right now so the camp that we are in loosely for you probably a little more loosely Um, but we're trying to get to that place of well what does the bible truly say that that is for for us the highest place but then like our reason does matter our traditions do matter and i I would argue probably very strongly um and our experience and just the world the natural theology like they're like those things have to play together and yes your theological camps will highlight and emphasize different ones obviously catholics raise tradition and scripture to basically the same and and we would not do that um because you know the bible but um you know other conversation but the point being that i think we have to get into that place of allowing allowing there to be brothers and sisters genuine believers other side of the table who can correct me who can bring me to a place of deeper understanding and and even when you extend that out beyond theology to the human condition to the human suffering right people who may not even believe the same things i believe but are human and experience Mm -hmm. some things that i can learn from and understand uh because i do believe jesus is ultimately the best answer for everything and so I do need to be open to those conversations around like human experience and human condition and seeing that in different places and not running from that. Cause at the end of the day, we all are made in the image of God, Imago Dei in every single one of us. And that does matter for something. Obviously our authority is Jesus and our authority is the scriptures and our authority isn't that, but I think there is still that conversation that, that can be had across the table, right. Of, of, of learning about humanity too, from different places. I just went in a different direction than I anticipated, but here we are. This has been The Cast with Sam and Mike. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to hit us up with any questions or comments you have at risencitychurch.com slash cast. And hey, if you want to engage with us live, we have church every Sunday, 10 a.m. at Cameron Heights. We'd love to chat with you, talk with you, and uh, get to know you a little more. So hey, come hang out.